Previously on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. Mid-February 1923, and what's on the air? Well, the trouble is, few know. There's a listings ban, you see. The press aren't happy with the three-month-old BBC stealing their readers. But while Selfridges come to the rescue and let Auntie Beeb use their ads, the broadcasters continue, and continue with landmark firsts, some of which go to plan, some of which less so. Including this time, the first political debate on the BBC, and the only one for years, as far as I can see. Yes, it looks like those early radio pioneers had not quite foreseen the controversy, the complexity, the importance of balance and all that jazz. Oh, we haven't even got as far as jazz yet. Reith hated that. More on the first political debate this episode, plus a special guest who is no stranger to a little bit of politics and other news over the past few decades at the BBC. We're delighted to have Rita Chakrabarty. We did, for weeks on end co-present from either Kiev or uh, Lviv. And I think for the audience, there was a certain amount of, oh gosh, it's that presenter who usually sits in a nice little studio in Broadcasting House in central London, suddenly standing on a rooftop in Kiev or Lviv. And it, I think it brought it home to people. I got quite a lot of audience feedback on social media, which was a sort of, oh my goodness, Rita, you're there. Just brought it home. What a dangerous situation it was. And we, of course, are are lucky. We can fly in and then we can fly out Mm. again. Um, unlike the people who are having to endure it. Yes, Rita Chakrabarti in the present day and the first political debate in February 1923 at either end of this British broadcasting century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London College. Hello, hello. Paul Carenza with you for Season 5, Episode 2, or Episode 62, depending on how you count. I'm aware that some podcasting devices may convince you that Season 5 has already had 62 episodes. It has not. This is the British Broadcasting Century, not made by, with, for, or here and under, the present-day BBC. Just like to tell you that. No, we're just talking about ye oldie days of broadcasting. Landmark moment by landmark moment. Now, where possible, our aim this year of 2023 is to match what went on a century ago right now. We'll see how long we last. But this episode lands on February the 22nd. And so, on February the 22nd, 1923, that meant a certain notorious outside broadcast. You see, since the first outside broadcast in early January of 23 at the Opera House, the early Beeb was going OB crazy. Variety shows, pantos, Burns Night Suppers, yes, via cables and telephone lines, they would wire up venues and immerse the listener in in certain locations. As well as that first broadcast political debate, we have a fabulous guest this episode, Continuing to bring politics and other news to us to this day, Rita Chakrabarty. Now, I got in touch with her after hearing her on the BBC 100 prom last year. See, there was a specially commissioned orchestral hybrid spoken word piece, all very Radio 3. It was marvellous. It was by the band Public Service Broadcasting. Yes, that's their name. Who else, of course, should do it? And this piece included the words and audio of various broadcasting pioneers. So first, Chief Engineer Peter Eckersley was on there, mixed into the music. John Reith's words boomed through the Royal Albert Hall and voicing the words of the first director of Talks Hilda Matheson was Rita Chakrabarty. See, I don't think there's any audio anywhere of Hilda Matheson in the archive or or anywhere else. I would love to be corrected on that. I would love to hear Hilda Matheson's voice. I'm writing a novel about her, pretty much. So uh, any beepsters with access do dig around, by all means, for some of Hilda Matheson's voice. But I've looked, I've found nothing. 
Most of her contributions were, were off air, but she was on the air very briefly. She read poems in December of 1926 when she'd just joined. She loved poetry and often she loved poets. But I think that's her only broadcast and it was pre Blatnophone, that recording device that uh, hadn't quite been invented yet, alas. So Hilda Matheson's poetry recital event went out unrecorded. Her voice remains lost to us, and she died quite young as well, so she predated the exit interviews that old-age pioneers did after World War II. But Hilda Matheson did pretty much invent modern speech radio. She encouraged political and cultural debate in defiance of John Reith. And indeed, after allegations from the right that she was a little bit too far to the left, it was a controversial debate on modernist literature, in fact. That would be Matheson's downfall and lead to her departure from the BBC in the early 1930s. So Hilda Matheson is just our way into this episode then, but we're here to talk about politics, news and discussion. Before we meet those who did it first, at the first broadcast political debate long before Matheson joined, let's meet somebody who's bringing us politics and news right now. Delighted to welcome to the podcast now a, a journalist, news broadcaster, a voice of calm and reason on the air, I like to think. Rita Chakrabarti, thank you for joining us here on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. I like that introduction. Thank you very much. Uh, how long have you been part of the BBC? I know you began in radio on the, in terms of the BBC. Uh, tell us how it what, the, what was the BBC like when you entered it? Well, I started off as a radio producer this was in the early 90s, so I've worked for the BBC for about 30 years for my sins. And in the early 90s, we still recorded on old ewers, if you, if you went out and did interviews, and everything was on tape, on quarter-inch tape, and we used to edit the tape with little bits of chalk, and you would listen for the sort of sweet spot as to quite where to edit. So... Editing audio is always an art, but it was a really physical art in those days. And I used to love editing quarter inch tape because it, it was you're just very much in your own world. Anyway, I started off um, on a BBC training scheme, uh, which was a wonderful scheme. You were taught uh, law for journalists. You were taught how to write. You were taught how to speak. And then I was let loose on um, the programmes I did. Uh, five different attachments of um, uh, three months each. And I must say I was terrified because everybody seemed so accomplished, so clever. Uh, I learned a great deal. Um, and then from then on, I got jobs in radio initially as a producer, but I very much wanted to report. So then I became a reporter and then I made the move to TV in the sort of mid 90s or so. I was firstly was inspired to speak to you because I, I heard your voice as Hilda Matheson on the public service broadcasting tribute to the last hundred years of the BBC. It was a fantastic thing to do. Mm. And those first pioneers, those first audio pioneers were so sure of themselves very sort of principled and morally driven and they spoke such beautiful English so it was lovely to be Hilda Matheson for 25 seconds. Absolutely. It was a golden 25 seconds absolutely and so I think I think she was she wrote pretty much the first book on broadcasting by the sounds of it so it was paving a way wasn't it that we now stand on the shoulders of giants. On the shoulders of these giants. More from Rita in a mo but let's go back then. Under Hilda Matheson, as 1926's British Broadcasting Company, 
became 1927's corporation. News coverage, so-called controversial matter, in other words, political opinion and cultural debates with opposing voices, all of these started to develop just as Matheson and the corporation days began. This was a huge shift for the BBC. At the end of 1926, one postmaster general said in the House of Commons, Once you let broadcasting into politics, you will never get politics out of broadcasting. Now compare this with the earlier days of 1923 that we find ourselves in in our timeline on this podcast. Talks back then meant you were lectured to. News was not gathered. It was read. It was leased from Reuters. But the British Broadcasting Company found out the hard way, I think, that news, opinion and controversy needed careful handling. They found this out by dipping a toe in now and then. So in our chronology, we're up to February the 22nd of 1923. And at this point, Tuolo in London had been enjoying outside broadcasts for some weeks. And so on that evening, they found an eminent capitalist and an eminent communist ready to do verbal battle in Kingsway Hall. They wired up the venue and they sent this debate out to listeners. The earlier schedule that evening came from the Marconi House studio. That would be Leslie Mainland's humorous zoo stories for Children's Hour, an address to Boy Scouts across the land, and the usual 2-0 orchestra and guest singers. But then live from Kingsway Hall, this debate on communism. We have a couple of BBC chief engineers to tell us all about it in archive clips. First, the chief engineer from 1952 to 56, but he was there at the start, Harold Bishop. I remember too, round about the beginning of 1923, what I think must have been our first political broadcast. We did an outside broadcast from the Kingsway Hall of a communist gentleman, Uh, and another gentleman of another political persuasion, I'm afraid I cannot remember exactly who it is, who it was. The debate was that communism would be a danger to the good of the people, proposed by Sir Ernest Benn and opposed by J.T. Walton Newbold. And there was great excitement because the, uh, the atmosphere in the hall was very tense and we radiated this for the very first time for people to listen to all over the country. Sir Ernest Benn, the proposer of the motion, the capitalist in question, he's the uncle of Tony Benn, the brother of the MP Wedgwood Benn, and he had many jobs. Well, he was called Mr Benn, after all. He was a publisher, a writer, an old colleague of John Reith's at the Ministry of Munitions. He's an adopter of classical liberalism, an individualist, he called himself, and his belief system. He liked the free market left to itself. He loathed fascism and socialism, all as state interference. He called himself a constructive capitalist. Against him, enter stage left, stage very left, Walton Newbold. He's the first of four Communist Party members to become an MP. He was elected the November before in 1922 on day two of the BBC. He was often mocked in the House of Commons for his shabby clothing, but he stood up for the unemployed and for those priced out of housing. Now, Walter Newbold was only MP for a year, and in that time, here he was at this first ever broadcast political debate. Before Fiona Bruce, David Dimbleby and Robin Day, there was Lord Asquith, the first chair of the first BBC political debate. Asquith was a lawyer, a civil servant and an industrial arbitrator. But could he keep control as Day, Dimbleby and Bruce would in years to come. Let's see if the man who was chief engineer at the time remembers the details any better than his colleague Harold Bishop. Can you get your facts right, Peter Eckersley? There was a debate at one of these halls where people have a debate. Was it Conway? Who knows? Uh, No, we know it was Kingsway. And um, it was a debate about communism. And uh, all uh, all the comrades were there. 
And uh, Wedgwood Ben, uh, I think I'm right. No, you're not. It was his brother, Sir Ernest Ben. Was uh, against it, basically. And there was somebody else, basically, for it. Over the air, at the end of it, when there was a perfect riot, came the red flag sailing through the respectable British ether. Came the red flag in all its fury and all its glory. And what a row there was about it. So Peter Eckersley, engineer there that night, allowed it and loved it. What a row afterwards. (laughs) And we know from later years that Eckersley particularly thought freedom of choice, even if that meant controversy, was a good thing for the listener. And he would have many clashes with Reith over that. Well, there were no recordings, alas, of this first broadcast debate. If only we could hear a little more of what went on. Well, maybe we can if we do a little bit more digging, because we do have the next day's newspapers. Oh, yes, the press at this point had banned BBC listings of what would be on the radio, but they were very happy to report on what had been on the radio the night before. They were realising that radio comment boosted sales. So thanks to the Daily Herald and the Dundee Evening Telegraph, we can piece together quite a bit of the somewhat lively discussion that went out on the air that night. Firstly, we're told it was arranged by the Industrial League and Council, which may explain why the audience seemed to lean somewhat to the left and got rather vocal. Yes, it does look like Kingsway Hall was somewhat filled with an audience more likely to side with the communist Walton Newbold. But Sir Ernest Benn, the capitalist, spoke first and he was frequently interrupted. I have spent money on communist literature, he said, so a heckler shouted, And well spent! Another time, The English system of government can be summed up in two lines. Rotten! came the reply. The communist finds that everybody is wrong excepting the communist. Everybody evil-minded excepting the communist. Everybody dishonest excepting the communist. And you claim that Russia and Germany are perfect, England and France unspeakable, but in Petrograd the streets are broad, the sledges glide over the sparkling snow to the musical tinkling of bells. There was much laughter and many cheers. But what can the Soviet system offer workers that they couldn't attain more speedily and more effectively under the British system? There were more interruptions. Well, he did ask. Ben concluded, In England, we don't hang communists. We put them into Parliament. Yes, and in prison, came the reply. There's Fiona Bruce when you need her. No, yes, gentlemen with the red tie at the back here. And it would have been red ties. Quite a lot of them, I imagine. His opposer, the communist Walton Newbold MP, rose to reply and was cheered with Give it him, Jack! Mr Newbold began by apologising for his supporters. I regret the interruptions. Communism would be for the welfare of the whole of the working classes. There is antagonism of mentality, but it's due to the different relationship of one to the other in the economic and social life in which we find ourselves. Bolshevism has at any rate not succeeded in eliminating the small traders in Russia. I could point out in the last few years Russia has not attempted to put communism into practice. I am not a member of the Russian government, but a member of the Executive Committee of the Communist International. The Soviet was elected not by secret ballot, but on much the same lines as the Labour movement in this country elected its representatives. The Communist Party of Russia is bound by iron discipline. I do everything in my power to get iron discipline here. When I get the degree of discipline I require, my opponents will get a better hearing. Oh, there were cheers to that. Sir Ernest Benn replied, You leave me quite ignorant on the points which seem to me so important. Foods, clothing, housing, production. How could communism benefit the good of the people? Boo! The crowd were not happy. Boo! Walter Newbold MP counted, Communism in Russia is in the process of establishment. During a period of transition, it's almost inevitable there should be a dictatorship. The Bolsheviks did not abolish religion. They abolished it only as a state institution. 
As to the productivity of Russia, consider the destruction at the pitheads during the war. You don't blame Mr. Poincare for the non-productivity of the French coal mines, do you? Then why do you blame Lenin and Trotsky? Boisterous cheers erupted and cries of, Ha <laughs> ha! Go on, rub it in! As for Sir Ernest Ben's closing response, he had to submit to a running fire of comment, and it was only with difficulty that he completed his reply, according to the Daily Herald. And Mr Newbold's final words? Well, I think that communism might be a system of despotism. I believe it would be for the welfare of the people for whom I speak, the whole of the working classes. And he sat to wild enthusiasm. No guesses who seemed to win the debate in the auditorium that night, but then again the days of the BBC choosing a balanced audience at question time were clearly some years ahead yet. There were votes of thanks to the Speaker and the Chairman, who clearly didn't seem to say much in all of this, and then the Communists in the audience stood, and they waved their hats and handkerchiefs, and they burst into song, impromptu singing the red flag, the Internationale. Imagine listeners in at home thinking... Why are they playing O Tannenbaum in late February? It's not Christmas. Yeah, many listeners in may not have ever heard the red flag. It all made for a feisty end to episode one of what would ultimately become Any Questions 25 years later, chaired by Freddie Grisewood, and ultimately become Question Time on television, chaired by Robin Day, another 31 years after that. But yes, 56 years earlier, that very first edition had an unexpected musical finale. And it caused a bit of a stir. Both that anthem and indeed those arguments in the debate, this is a new use for the radio medium. One that the industry, if you can call it an industry of one company, was perhaps not ready for yet. Both listeners and politicians complained. There were questions in the House of Commons, but live radio is live radio. Now, you don't see much of that in the history books at all. Almost all of the above is thanks to what was printed in the newspapers. God bless the printed press, illuminating broadcasting, even though at the time they were rather sceptical of it. And there you were, you see, suddenly aware that this power, this medium, this medium was something so terrific that even that, uh, no, no, I won't say even that, but that could be suddenly made aware to millions of people probably never heard of the red flag, never heard of communism, except as sort of denigration. And that, that was one of the most dramatic occasions that I can remember. The Postmaster General was highly concerned of the risks of such controversial broadcasts happening again. Perhaps because of this and other uncertainties between the Beeb and the government, the next few years saw very much a play-it-safe attitude from on high. Though not without Reith trying his luck. Later in 1923, there was another general election just a year after 1922's, but the Postmaster General refused permission to broadcast political speeches by party leaders. There was yet another general election a year after that in 1924, and there were political speeches by party leaders for that one. In the national interest, so Reith pleaded. A different Postmaster General, a more lenient one, allowed it. But there wasn't much beyond that election, really. In March 1925, the Postmaster General refused permission once again for a broadcast debate on the King's speech from the Oxford Union. There were to be three speeches in support of each political party, balanced but banned. But its essentially political character was the only reason the government gave for the ban. Debates on unemployment, free trade, discussions of strikes, all of these were banned from the airwaves in these early company years. Perhaps a private company was not to be trusted to be fair and uncontroversial. 
By the time of the corporation, the general strike had occurred and Reith had clearly earned the trust of the government. News gathering and a delicate handling of controversial debates could start to come in more from 1927. So let's be glad of more enlightened open times and the next time you hear allegations of bias, be glad they can broadcast anything at all. Because in those early days, that first political broadcast debate was pretty much it. Even early on, you could see the first time the BBC got in trouble in early 1923, they broadcast the first political debate. The audience started singing the red flag and in the papers the next day, Vickers complaining about, oh, we didn't expect to hear the red flag sung at this thing. A hundred years on, the BBC enters this second century. You try and do a thing and you're going to have rocks thrown at you from all sides saying you're not preaching the version that I'd like, aren't you? That is true. Good luck to you. And those voices have become amplified in all sorts of ways in recent years, haven't they? But at the same time, Paul, the BBC is a unifying factor and a unifying force. Look at the huge things that have happened in the last 18 months. The death of Queen Elizabeth. People flocked to the BBC. They they watched a lot of other TV too. I'm not claiming um, a monopoly, but they did particularly turn to the BBC because we are the national broadcaster. Uh, They did so in the happier time of the Jubilee in the early summer. In the first weeks and months of the Ukraine war, we had huge figures. During the COVID lockdowns, admittedly, people didn't have anything else to do. They were confined Mm. to their homes. We had a captive audience. They didn't have to switch us on. Mm. And they did. We had huge audiences. So, you know, we are, as you say, a political football or it's just easy for people to get angry with us and gripe at us because we're we're not representing their point of view. But when it really counts, when there are real issues of either national tragedy or national celebration or huge international events that people are agog for, they come to us. Mm. So I, I, I hope that we we are as essential as we always have been. We see you as an anchor in the studio, and yet something like the Ukraine conflict. We've seen you also reporting from there. How's that been for you? And, and, and what does it mean to you to actually be able to broadcast and shine a light on those parts of the world for us? Oh, it's I mean, it, it is the job. That is the essence of the cho- job is going out, uh, speaking to people, seeing things for yourself, bringing back first person eyewitness testimony and bringing to that testimony all of those BBC values that you keep hearing us talking about of impartiality, of balance, uh, and also bringing a certain, bringing a humanity to it too. I think the older I've got, the more I've understood that, you know, a certain amount, not of personal emotion, but understanding that the emotion the audience is going to be feeling, listening to the interviewee, it is very legitimate to channel some of that. So it's very important to me, although I love presenting the news in, from the studio. It's also very important that I go out and about. And I think it's, it's you know, it, it lends me and others like me more authority as well. If the audience has seen, right, she's been out and seen it for herself, then, um, you know, you speak of it with more authority and from a position of greater knowledge. Um, I have been lucky enough to do quite a lot of travelling since I've become a presenter. So Ukraine, I went very differently to Paris to do the French presidential elections. Prior to that, I went to Bangladesh several times for the Rohingya crisis. I spent various weeks on charity boats in the Mediterranean for the European migrant crisis in 2016 and 17. So I've done quite a lot. And it's it, it's been fantastic for me. 
Um, I was somebody who, when I was younger, had very much wanted to be a foreign correspondent, but um, real life intervened in the form of children. Mm. And some some women um, managed to do managed to both have a family and work abroad and you know, just hats off mm. to them for me for various reasons it wasn't possible but later on with the children mm. older i have yes. been able to do it and that's been good that's wonderful yes we, we had uh, we had justin webb on here a few uh, episodes ago and he was he was saying you know correspondent overseas loved it then right now very happy to just be in london that'll do nicely thank you much indeed so it's almost <laughs> like he's, he's got the, the bug's gone now so uh bugs but it's, it's age and stage you know, isn't it whereas it for me it. Um, the bug was always there and I was able to, you know, I was able to fulfill it a bit later on. Mm. You know, I see when the Ukraine crisis struck, really, it seemed like the BBC could just suddenly almost, I know it's not flicking a switch and it just happens, but the number of people that were suddenly mobilised into being able to broadcast, tell that story seemed incredible. Yes. And that is the thing about the BBC, isn't it? It's its reach. It's the fact that we do have a presence all around the world, although Ukraine, of course, uh, in the heart of Europe. Um, But we have the reach and we have the expertise. And uh, Ukraine was a chance for us also to show off some of our most experienced people. Show off is not quite the right term, but they brought their experience to bear on a very difficult and uh, very um, dismaying story. So people like Jeremy Bowen, Lise Doucette, Orla Gearin. Um, I mean, I don't want to guess how long they've worked for the BBC, but I imagine it's for as, at least as long as I have. Um, Clive Myrie, who is a, a veteran of foreign broadcasting, you know, and that I think that's how we showed our immense range and breadth of talent Um, a lot of the time of course you don't realize you're not really taking in the person who's bringing you the report because that's part of the art of it it is about the story it's not about the journalist Um, but they do it so well and they do it so they're, they're all wordsmiths they're all very good at crafting language and when I was there I tried to do some of that too hopefully Let's give you a little more insight onto the BBC back in February of 1923 then, shall we? A hundred years ago right now, there were still less than 50 employees, but it was growing fast. And growing fastest were the female staff. The dozen typists and filing staff now had a notable department supervisor in Caroline Banks. Now, Caroline Banks was interviewed by John Reith and Major Anderson, the secretary, and Peter Eckersley, the chief engineer, who you heard earlier Banks was hired to oversee this clerical department. It was later called General Office. For now, it was at Magnet House in the one-room BBC HQ. It's getting rather full, but Savoy Hill would open soon. Caroline Banks retired in 1956, and when she left, she was supervisor of the General Office, pretty much the same job title as when she began a third of a century earlier. She just had far more employees under her supervision. Now, let's look at what else was happening back in February of 1923 and the days after that first political debate. Well, that week, the press listings ban was still on, but elsewhere in the newspapers, they were extolling the virtues of radio. The Daily Mirror, for example, had sent one of their own journalists, Bertram Lamb, on the air as Uncle Dick in the Children's Hour, launching Pets Radio. In the newspapers, he was known as Uncle Dick as well, writing regular comic strips in the Daily Mirror called Pip, Squeak and Wilfred. If you've heard those names before, it may be because they were nicknames of World War I medals as well. But here, Pip, Squeak and Wilfred were a dog, a penguin 
and a rabbit. These characters were orphaned and formed an animal family, and they were popular for decades after. But here they made the leap from newspaper page to the airwaves, with Pip the dog offering to chase away listeners' rats, Squeak the penguin giving a squeakian message. Dear duckies, I hope you all had a nice tea. We have had a beautiful tea. Muffins, plum cake and shrimps. Yeah, she was a penguin. Wilfred the rabbit said nothing. Another in that age-old tradition of the mute sidekick, like Gromit or Mr Bean or Niles's wife in Frasier. Children wrote in joyous to hear some of their favourite characters come to life on the airwaves, including, for example, Joyce Brexup of Lydon Farm in Margate. We heard your little chat very clearly. It's sometimes lonely here, but now we feel more in touch with the world. Now to much more recent broadcasting history. One of today's finest news broadcasters, Rita Chakrabarti. In the time you've been at the BBC, it must have changed from the days of tape to the days of digital. And nowadays, you know, you see a 17, 18-year-old who's starting on TikTok and things like that. But there must be certain truths that were true then, true now, and technology changes. But what's what's your advice to anyone wanting to start out today? Well, the essential truths uh, have not changed, which are be curious, uh, read a lot, make sure you know what's going on, have opinions on what's going on. I mean, this might sound counterintuitive because, of course, we never express our opinion at the BBC, but it's good to know what you think and to test yourself sometimes, actually. I think if you know where you're coming from, it is easy, easier to recognise mm-hmm. <laughs> whether you're about to tip over into something that's a little bit biased. I would also say that you should be open to all sorts of opinions. You know, in our social lives, we do tend to... We make friends with people that think the same as us, don't we? And it, it, it's good to spread yourself, good to be open to all sorts of different opinions. Thereafter, I think life is more difficult probably for people starting out than it was in my time, partly because in my time, things were more informal. So when I was, I, I did a, an academic degree, um, you know, nothing to do with journalism and wanted to become a journalist, I had no idea how, I had no contacts, we had no family connections or anything. So I just wrote off to the local radio station, the local newspaper and a TV um, magazine programme saying, can I just come and sort of shadow for a couple of weeks? And they all said yes. And I don't think you can do that anymore. Mm. I think everything's very centralised. It's websites. It's hugely competitive. It was competitive back then, but less formal, as I mm. say. At the same time, given that, you know, our information communications have mushroomed in that time, There are all these other things that you can do, like you say, being on TikTok, Mm -hmm. having a blog, Mm -hmm. having your own podcast, being present on social media. And I think all of these things show that you're putting yourself about and will help when you're applying for jobs. February the 24th, 1923, saw another outside broadcast from a theatre. Popular West End show, The Last Waltz, from the Gaiety Theatre, which was downstairs from Marconi House. Not much cable needed for that one. It was also the start of the weekly musical, dramatic, literary and film talks. Those are four different talks. First of a series of dramatic criticism. going to give you his usual literary criticism. Very popular in the early days of the BBC. February the 26th at 9pm, there's a short address from Dr R.S. Littleford on Shakespeare. Shakespeare and broadcasting. And more on early Shakespeare at the BBC on forthcoming episodes from Dr. Andrea Smith and Professor Tim Crook.
The next day, February the 27th, apparently has the first dance music concert with Marius B. Winter's dance band. But I think February the 6th, actually, in Manchester beat them to it. Into March then, March the 1st, saw the first broadcast in Welsh on the Welsh station Cardiff 5WA for St David's Day. Reverend Gwilym Davies of the Welsh League of Nations Union. Just before four o'clock, there was a telephone call from Mr Rex Palmer... The announcer with a golden voice... It was still pretty hectic in those early days. You see, said Mr Palmer, I'm in a fix. Lord Robert Cecil is on our programme today to give a talk on the League of Nations. Something has gone suddenly wrong with the arrangements. I want you to speak from this studio. When am I to begin, I asked. At once, he replied. Where am I to stand? On that box, he answered. Speak into the centre telephone mouthpiece... The microphone has not yet arrived from London. Very well, I replied, I will speak on world peace. And as it is St. David's Day, I will speak in Welsh. I spoke of the Welsh pioneers, and I wound up with the well-known lines, Segurdodiw Claude Claire, Arhud, Yuai and Rhedev. Idleness is the pride of the sword, and rust is its glory. Back in London on March the 1st, though, the early BBC's eagerness for outside broadcasts continued, and in fact continued throughout March, with near-daily broadcasts from one particular place, the Daily Mail Ideal Home Exhibition. Oh yes, those newspapers were intricately involved once again, wherever you looked in the early days of broadcasting. We'll have more on the Ideal Home Exhibition broadcasts in a couple of episodes' time. But that exhibition did help launch a certain broadcasting landmark on its second day. March the 2nd saw the first daytime programmes on the BBC. Morning and afternoon, joining the evening's five-hour-long broadcast. Father Brown, Doctors and Bargain Hunt would be some way off yet, but it was a start. And lastly, for now, March the 3rd, John Reith noted in his diary that Muriel and I dined with Captain Round of Marconi at the Waldorf, and he was very civil to us. Well, quite right too. Captain Round's grandson, David Jervis, was on the podcast last episode, and granddaughter Judith Butler has joined us on our Facebook group. I'm sure they would agree just how civil that genius Captain Round could be. Civil engineering indeed. Over the next few days, John Reith then headed to Glasgow to launch the BBC in Scotland. And more on that next episode. A final word then from Rita Chakrabarti. Final question then, career highlight. There have just been too many things. Yeah. I mean, my, my first very big story was the Stephen Lawrence inquiry and, uh, and, and the subsequent stories that came out of that that will forever be for me a, a story very close to my heart. So that I've always got to talk about the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. But, you know, other than that, I've done countless general elections, countless changes of party leader. I've travelled to all these places that I told you about at the beginning. I wonderfully did the 70th anniversary of uh, Indian and Pakistani mm. independence, which meant a lot to me. And I'd never been to Pakistan before. I come from an Indian family, so that was fascinating I went to Auschwitz for its 75th anniversary, and that was every bit as unsettling and creepy as you can imagine. It's such a huge privilege to be able to go to these places, to do these stories and to report back to people, to tell people what is going on. It's just it's just an enormous, enormous thrill. Well, long may you continue to do just that. 
Thank you for joining us, Rita Chakrabarty. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Paul. My thanks to Rita, a marvellous guest, and plenty more marvellous ones to come. Soon on this podcast, Johnny Beerling, the ex-Radio 1 boss. Plenty of tales from him. We've got a great look at children's programmes with Dr Amy Holdsworth, author of the fabulous book On Living With Television. And I'm so sorry, Amy, that I've clung on to the interview for so long. We recorded it well over a year ago. I can only apologise. So many guests, so little time, so few episodes. And that also applies to engineer Norman Green, a former news producer, Morris Blisson. We've got a musical tale from Alec Reed, archives with Simon Rooks, the ex-BBC archivist, a look back at comedy with Geoffrey Holland and James Carey. Oh man, we've got guests galore, many of them recorded far too long ago. But we have to do everything in order. So next time, it's time for a sixth station after London, Manchester, Birmingham, Newcastle and Cardiff. Glasgow awaits. We know plenty about it and tony curry will be our guide and we'll give you all the little insights and juicy details if you like the podcast don't forget we're on patreon.com slash paul carenza where extra videos and writings await you yours for a few pounds a month to keep this afloat or the free way to support this is of course to tell people share it online email a pal phone up an old radio loving or historically fascinated chum and help this one-man project find at least one new pair of ears it's all very much appreciated because... The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced solely by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer, because I couldn't compose music to save my life. Archive material is so old it's generally public domain, but BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved and preserved for future generations. All right, not half. Stay informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time for the launch of the BBC in Scotland, Glasgow 5SC. 100 years ago on this British Broadcasting Century.